Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the community radio network and direct to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Monica Attard. Well, as the calls for a ceasefire between Israel and Palestine grow internationally, we turn this week to how the media in Australia has covered the ongoing death and destruction there. Many in the media think the way our newsrooms cover this issue has helped lead to a distorted picture of the crisis – and they want it to change. At the time of recording, over 680 journalists and others had signed an open letter calling for a new way and a major pushback on the traditional way the media has covered Palestine. In this edition, we ask, is our media guilty of both siderism on this issue, or is this simply an issue the Australian media is ill-equipped to cover because of its complexity and our distance from it. To discuss these important issues, we're joined by two very qualified and experienced journalists. Sophie McNeil is a former ABC foreign correspondent. She's covered the Middle East extensively, including Gaza. She's also the author of We Can't Say We Didn't Know, and she now works for Human Rights Watch. Hugh Rimmington is the National Affairs Editor for 10 News First. He's also worked at CNN in Hong Kong, from where he reported on Asia, including China. Welcome to you both. Sophie, I'll start with you. You've reported from Gaza and you've seen this conflict from the ground. Is Australian media, in your mind, covering this latest outbreak of conflict well for an Australian audience? No, I don't think they are. Um, Monica, I think um, what's happened is that people are really paralysed by fear. You know, they cover this conflict unlike any other story. They know how controversial it is. They get scared. They're told it's too complex. You don't understand. And so they just shy away. And it's really disappointing that this has gone on for so many years. And, you know, when I was there in the Middle East, I was really strongly backed by the ABC. I had a brilliant foreign editor at the time who who, you know, really, really looked after me and uh, the whole organisation backed me when I came under attack. But I think, you know, other people saw how I was treated. You know, I had, um, you know, a member of parliament take out ads and, you know, defame me and criticise me in in a newspaper. Mm. Like, it was really stressful, really, really stressful. And I was someone who'd spent more than 10 years in the region and was really confident calling things out for what they were. Um, and yet it was still incredibly stressful. So I think, you know, journalists watch that. They, they get fearful. And, yeah, they, they just avoid the, the hard issues, unfortunately. So in, your, so in your mind, the problem right now lies with the reporters rather than with editors? No, I think it's um, both. Um, but I think it actually mainly rests on editors because I also know how many times reporters have gone to editors wanting to cover things and they get, you know, get... There's pushback, you know, it's it's hard. And, you know, I know that from having covered this story, um, that when I pitched something on Israel-Palestine, it was treated differently to any other story. And it's got to end, you know, it really clouds the public's understanding of the issue. Sophie, can I just interrupt there? When you say treated differently, talk us through that. What does that look like? You pitch a story... Yeah, so there's hesitation, there's, oh, you know, okay, but who will you talk to? And there's, there is a level of, um, you know, editorial involvement in a story on Israel-Palestine that, that you cannot compare to any other story. You know, I covered Syria, I covered Yemen, I covered ISIS, I co- you know, um, I've covered 
China, Hong Kong, you know, unlike any other story I've ever covered, that the hesitation and the concern um, and the, you know, going out of the way to make sure, you know, both sides, you know, um, yeah, no other story is treated in, in that way. No other conflict is treated in that way. And that harms the public's understanding of this story and it harms the coverage in a really damaging way. Okay, so just to be clear, you're saying the hesitation is not in covering it at all, but in the manner in which it's covered, so that they're insisting that it... Be- no, both. No, even covering it at all, you know, or can you know, can we be bothered with dealing with the complaints and, you know, have we are we sure we're gonna get the right voices so that we don't get any you know, that seem to be fair and uh, yeah, it's whether to even cover it at all and then how that coverage happens if it's actually even commissioned. Okay. Now, Hugh, Hugh, what's your take on, on the Australian media's coverage thus far of this latest outbreak of conflict? Well, it's interesting to listen to Sophia, who I enormously respect as a reporter and I respect her decision to go and now work for Human Rights Watch, uh, you know, to, to use a voice in a different way. Uh, the, the notion that we're not covering the story or avoiding the story uh, in day-to-day terms, we don't, like in normal times, we don't. Uh, but it, in this period that we're in at the moment, uh, in the last, you know, nearly two weeks, um, it has been covered. It's been in either the lead story or certainly high in the first break in all the stories that Network 10 has been car- carrying, uh, you know, so who I work for. And, so- and Hugh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying, you know, of course we're covering this war. I'm talking about the day-to-day that doesn't get covered. So normal times, of course a war is going to, you know, lead commercial news. Um, but it's the, the day-to-day on Israel-Palestine that people avoid. Um, and I, you know, I've intense coverage of this conflict and I think sometimes it's even um, you know better than than the ABCs actually it's more willing to say to call things out for what they are Hugh well I just see it as being well I see it just simply as being reporting and um, so when you talk about the both sides issues of it I think if you simply report what's in front of us in the course of this current conflict um, then People can see that there is a, uh, you know, there is a total difference in the death toll, um, you know, the destruction, the 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 ruination of infrastructure within Gaza uh, compared with what's happening on the other side. You just simply report it, and people can filter out from that their own, you know, their own sense that this is, you know, as I described it in one of the stories this week, it's a David and Goliath battle. Only this time, you know it is Israel that is the Goliath and as it has been now for many years. So it, it you know, to me, uh, there are two issues and I think, uh, Sophie's pointing it up there a little bit is when it flares up into the point of being a war, it has our attention. Hmm. What we're not seeing is the day-to-day processes. We don't get lost in the weeds as we might see it in, for example, the political collapse and paralysis that's happened within uh, Israel, mm. uh, you know, series of elections, this, this kind of this period in which um, there's no clear uh, democratic um, resolution to their political problems. In And then in the middle of it comes a war, which is to some degree politically convenient to uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, we don't go into the business of the politics of the paralysis of the politics, if you like, within uh, particularly Gaza, but also on the West Bank. We don't go and do those stories to a, to a general Australian audience. Our audience is fundamentally suburban Australia. Um, 
you know, they've got other concerns. And if people have a particular interest in those things, they can go to more specialist outlets to go and, and have a look at well, it. Well, actually, so, that, that actually brings me to the next point, though. I mean, do you think that in a conflict like this, which has gone on for so long, um, it, there's been, you know, since 87, over 14,000 people have died in this conflict, uh, 87% of those deaths have been on the Palestinian side. Do you think that, that, that we've become both as an audience and as journalists, that we've kind of become a little bit desensitised to it? Um, I think, you know, there's this whole kind of approach of the newsroom, or, you know, more of the same, what's different, what's mm. different. <laughs> so it's always really hard to convince your editors that this is significant. You know, this latest round of house demolitions or, you know, there were four kids shot this Friday in a demonstration. How's it different to last week? Yes, it's really hard um, to keep up, you know, any interest in in the daily grind of of what is you know a military occupation in the west bank you know it's been going on for more than 50 years hasn't you know gotten worse and worse and worse so how do you capture that as a daily story you know and she points out yeah like it, it is it it's very difficult for um australian organizations to put you know that level of detail into their daily reporting because it isn't the headline stuff you know it's that 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 daily the daily humiliations and the daily um you know human rights violations that we see that get us to the point we are today you know and, and this is I mean it's the problem of all news isn't it that suddenly the focus is on you know it's all on the last week rather than the decades that got us to where we are and I think that's what what human rights watch is trying to do now is change the discourse change the language so to try and capture the, that daily grind of occupation and human rights abuse and and what we're saying is that Israel is guilty of committing the crime against humanity of apartheid. And that is a powerful word to use. And, and by using that word, we're saying that's the level of abuse. That's where it's gotten to. And that, you know, that this should change how we refer to the Israeli government and the conflict there. So language is very important here. And we specifically, you know, come out and, and said this after years of research, this report we put out three weeks ago, um, years and years and years were put into collecting all that evidence. Um, so that's one way of trying to change the discourse and capture that daily grind that doesn't make the headlines. So, Hugh, would, would your editors, A, allow you, if you were so inclined, to cover the day-to-day grind that leads up to these kind of these, these outbreaks of, of, of conflict that actually kill people? And, and secondly, would they allow you to use the word apartheid? Well, so two two questions is, and the first one is, is that I don't think you can cover it unless you're on the ground, and we're not on the ground. Mm. Um, we don't keep a Middle East office. None of the commercial uh, broadcasters keep that. I spend a lot of time going in and out of Middle East, uh, out of the Middle East. I have done for um, for 25 years. I've I took my daughter on a trip when she was 13 there just a couple of years ago, late uh, 2019, because I wanted her to be aware of what was going on. We stayed in Jerusalem. We, we sort of visited the West Bank. We, we went across to Jordan and so on. And that was just a sort of, you know, you know rapid fire sort of um, education for her. Great idea. As to how that goes. So, but, you know, I, I do think it's, there's plenty of agency what vision comes in every day out of the Middle East. Do we form that up into stories? I, I think you need to be on the ground. Um, and the, and so the, what's really disappointing is that Australians, you know, outlets have closed so many offices there. So, you know, Fairfax used to have a correspondent based in Jerusalem. The Australian used to have a correspondent based there. Um, so there's just, you know, we're, we're really not getting as much coverage as we used to. 
Mm. Well, indeed. In fact, the ABC had a correspondent in Jerusalem and one in Beirut. So within a you know within you know a couple of hundred kilometres of each other, you had uh, two correspondents. Although they were covering a wide field, as you know better than most, uh, Sophie. So, so that business of reporting what's going. If I just put a counterfactual in there, I think some people might argue that it is the most overreported parts conflict zones in the world. Um, you know, because we're not expending as much. Uh, you know, effort and airtime on what might be happening, for example, in Myanmar or in, um, you know, we can't get in to see what's really going on with the Uyghurs in Western China. Uh, we, we, you know, so that the, there are sort of calamitous events going on in the world that are getting, uh, that are substantially ignored. The Middle East gets covered and it's a highly contested space. And the argument about, you know, it just keeps going on, what's new in this, et cetera. This is the central tragedy of the Middle East is that the conflicts have no path to resolution. Uh, there is a theoretical path that's been laid down. It's been, uh, it's been, it's been laid out again by Tor Wenersland, who's the special coordinator of the UN, you know, in, in the talks and the UN sessions, the Security Council sessions that have been taking place in recent days. It still goes down to a viable two-state solution with Jerusalem as a capital for both the Palestinians and for uh, the Jews, the, the state of Israel. Uh, you know, but there are, you know, we, I was there in 96 when, when the Oslo process basically collapsed finally um, with the election of Bibi Netanyahu. Uh, and, you know, back then, it seemed as if there might be a path to peace, but there hasn't been one in 25 years. Okay, so Hugh, you know, so does the way the media covers this story make any difference in the end? If there's no resolution, if there's no prospect for resolution? Well, uh, what I think... So, sorry, yeah, go ahead, sorry. Sophie. Sophie. Oh, I mean, <laughs> sorry, Hugh, I was, was going to say that what's fascinating, I think, the discourse is slowly changing in the US, for example, and I think it's social media. You know, I think Palestinians are increasingly getting their version of events and video of, you know, what's, what's happening on the ground out through social media. And I think it's really interesting to see that, you know, it wasn't really thanks to any, <laughs> any reporting, um, but it was more, you know, individuals um, telling their stories and that you can't, you know, no matter that, you know, that all the pressure on journalists and how you report this story and the pressure we all know that the Israeli lobby does put on journalists, you know, I experienced it very much myself. That doesn't, you know, impact people's social media accounts, things that go viral. So that's something that they, they can't control. And that's really interesting. I think we're, that's, we're seeing the impact of that now as the discourse is slowly changing. Okay. Hugh, what do you think? Well, I think social media, like all social media, is there to present a point. And that's fine. It's good to see voices amplified in that way. A reporter's job is not simply to be social media. A reporter's job, in theory, is to uh, is to provide some analysis, uh, analysis, context, and so on. There is no question that life, particularly in Gaza, is a hopeless proposition, almost hopeless. I don't, I don't want to put them into that cage of hopelessness, but there is that the fundamentals haven't changed. Uh, in decades, in generations, and you don't see a path to that changing. And that creates this terrible frustration. And then these periodic explosions of violence that take place, uh, 
which which always ends with with more hammering of 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 the infrastructure within Gaza. The, you know, the UN has been in charge of pouring billions of dollars in since the last big conflagration in 2014 to try and rebuild infrastructure in Gaza. Now, much of that has been destroyed by this latest effort. Much of it was winnowed away in corruption and graft as well, no doubt. Some of it, we're told, was went into into a lot of the reinforced concrete went into. Um, into the tunnel systems that have now been hammered. That was the Hamas tunnel system. So, you know, there, there's a sense of 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 long term hopelessness, and that is not good. It's not good for the Palestinian people. It's not good for humanity in general. There has to be ultimately a path out of this, but no one is moving towards that that path. And just very quickly on the question of about the word apartheid. I don't like the word apartheid applied to this. I understand why it might be used. Um, you know, I, I reported on South Africa, as many reporters do. I, I was heavily involved in, in, in my, my, the commitment of my life as a journalist was heavily involved in reporting the apartheid regime going way back to, to you know, to the very early 1980s. And, and, and the, you know, I, I kind of feel as if every appalling circumstance kind of deserves its own name and no, but this uh, is the thing hugh is that apartheid now is a crime under international law it's not just saying it's like south africa apartheid after the horror of apartheid in south africa the international legal system defined apartheid as a crime a crime against humanity and so that's what we're saying we're saying that the evidence on the ground meets that threshold of apartheid as defined under the rome statute so it's not just saying it's like South Africa. It, it, it is a now it, it, because of that horror there, they've made this this crime that we are saying. Well, I don't you know, look. There is no question, and it doesn't matter particularly what the word is. There is no question that the um, the building of settlements on occupied territory in the West Bank is a crime against humanity. It's certainly a crime against the Palestinian people, and the deepest. Uh, offence related to that is that it 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 removes with every passing week month year it removes the prospect of it coming to a point of peace so essentially it is locking in um, you know a disastrous outcome for everyone and everyone's position on this in Israel you know if you look at Israel uh, the 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 mood that existed in Israel in the early 1990s where Bibi Netanyahu was initially seen when he first emerged as a, as a kind of a right wing, um, not to be taken too seriously type type of guy, super glib, the whole country has moved towards him over the subsequent twenty five years. Obviously, he's he's not, you know, his political uh, standing has been damaged by corruption and by a whole bunch of other things. But in terms of the overall view, it has moved into a more bellicose, more, um, more unforgiving position. And, and, and equally you've got Hamas. There's nothing, there's nothing in Hamas's, uh, charter or in its intentions that say that it's there as a willing partner, uh, to peace. Uh, you know, the, the, the people of, of Gaza, are not being offered elections to sort out what they want out of this process, free and fair elections. So, you know, there's, those are also issues that can't be, you know, I could be accused of both sidism here, but, but that's exactly the truth of it. So there are different sides, there are stories, and you can't tell a, 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 a you can't tell the story without 
reflecting on what are the internal pressures on each of these two warring parties and their populations, and how does that play out in the overall strategic scheme of things? Okay, can I just take you both now to this open letter that's been signed by journalists, media workers, writers, commentators, some 680 of them, um, and it's directed to editors and publishers demanding of them that they make space for Palestinian perspectives and that they avoid both siderism and they respect the rights of journalists to have a view and be able to publicly express solidarity with the Palestinians. So I guess my question is, are these sensible demands and goals when you're covering a conflict like this, or are they really just missing the whole point of the media, particularly on that last point, having journalists being able to publicly express solidarity with the Palestinians, which sounds very, very much like picking a side. Hugh? Well, I've seen that letter and I wouldn't sign it. Um uh, I, part of that is because my life in journalism, I'm not a petition signer. I, I think that we do have a role. If we have any role that's left to us, it is actually um, to to try to, uh, you know, that business of both siderism as being a negative thing. In fact, you know, there's never going to be any any resolution. There's, you know, go back to Sun Tzu. It's about know your enemy and know yourself. You've got to see both or all sides. You need to report what's going on. And journalism has a role in that. Um, the, I, I do think that there is, that there's a line between being a reporter and being an activist. And uh, reporters do a valuable role as reporters. Activists do an a valuable role as being an activist. And I think it is highly commendable to see someone like Sophie go from being a reporter to being essentially human rights activist, to being a voice, to, to putting a flag down on the ground and saying, I am now for human rights. This is where I see the problems. This is how I'm going to devote my life. One of my most admired colleagues, Steve Levitt, who was a cameraman that I worked with, who introduced me to and took me around places in Africa, in northern Uganda and southern Sudan and those civil wars, etc. in the 1990s, later went on to work for World Vision. I applaud him for that. There's a guy called Larry Lester who now runs uh, Humans Without Borders in the Middle East, which is involved in getting Palestinians, sick Palestinians, so not war zone injured, but people have got ordinary things, needing dialysis for kidneys, etc., of you know, cancer treatments, and is involved in bringing Palestinians to... Um, uh, to Israeli hospitals for, for better treatment by an Australian outfit called Ros Project Rosanna. It, it, he was a journalist. Mm. It, it is good for journalists to become activists. They see stuff. It's good to get fired up and do it. But at that point, you're not a reporter. No. And I think that activist is good. Reporter is good. There is a church and state between the two. Sophie, does avoiding both siderism mean that you've got to pick a side? Oh, absolutely not. No, what I mean, what we want is we want this conflict to be covered like any other. And, you know, when I was covering Syria, did I go out of my way to give, you know, the person dropping the bombs, the, you know, their point of view? Or when I covered Yemen, did I, you know, go out of my way to cover, you know, to get that point of view? Um, what I'm saying is it needs to be covered like any other conflict. And, yes, you know, you, you need to look at that story that day and cover it as it should be covered. You know, a six-year-old Israeli child was killed by a rocket a few days ago. Um, yes, the death toll is higher in Gaza, but that story was that today's story because that was, that, you know, that victim, that that day. Um, 
what I'm saying is that you have to pick each day for as it is and cover it like every other conflict. Whereas right now in newsrooms, Israel-Palestine, people get nervous. People are full of fear and trepidation about complaints, about pressure from the Israeli lobby, and they cover it differently. Okay, it's but, very but, clear. But, I know this but myself. It, and so... But when a but, but think, Sophie but Sophie when a petition says that it wants journalists to be able to publicly express solidarity with the Palestinians, that that feels to me like it's just strikingly dangerously close to asking journalists to pick your side. Yeah, I think that that there are a lot of problems with that, and I think as a Middle East correspondent for the ABC, I would certainly not have signed that letter. Hmm. I think what that letter reflects is a deep concern um, that exists because everybody knows about the pressures placed on journalists over this particular story, right? And then they know about the fear and the trepidation. So I think this petition um, reflects really accurate concerns. There should be you know, more debate about how much attention is given to um, the, the lobby and how our editors engage with those people because mm. they, they don't own other stories. So why is this one any different? So mm. we're not saying, I'm not saying that you should prioritise anyone's voice except for who's, you know, suffering on that day. That's who I want to be prioritised. Mm. Okay. And I want the truth and the facts to be called out. And just things like our language, you know, we're too scared to point out, it's a, you know, it's an illegal occupation of the West Bank. You know, settlements are illegal. East Jerusalem is occupied. All that kind of language that we get too scared to use. But that's the fact. You know, so what we are calling for at Human Rights Watch is for the facts um, and the truth to be prioritised and those who are suffering. And I feel that often you don't get to see that sometimes in the coverage of Israel-Palestine. Okay, so now can and, I, yeah, Sorry, Sophie, go on. Well, I, and also we just cover it in a vacuum, like we can't understand how it got to this point. So what we're saying is that, you know, it's not about just the last few weeks. It's about decades here of a people who have no civil rights, right? So I think it's really interesting in the wake of Black Lives Matter, Me Too, you know, this struggle of the Palestinians is one of equality, right? And that's how we're saying it should be seen. It shouldn't be seen as this, this, you know, this vacuum of, you know, this conflict today, what's happening in Gaza. It needs to be seen within the context of a people who, who for, you know, more than 50 years have been living under a military occupation and have no rights. And that's where we're trying to focus the conversation now as a human rights group. Okay. Now, look, I want to take you both back briefly to the role of a reporter, particularly when they're covering conflict. And having had the experience myself, I think it's very, very difficult to to um, d- detach yourself uh, and avoid getting too involved with the story that you're covering. Um, first of all, I'd like to ask both of you, have you been in a situation where you have found it really, really difficult to detach? And does that has that ever led you into a situation where your reportage re- reflects that attachment in a in a kind of objectively dangerous way, Hugh? Uh, look, I think so, and I'm completely sympathetic with uh, Sophie when she says, you know, if you're there with people who are dying at a particular time, that is the story. Mm. You know, the, the, the fact of children, of, you know, the, the stuff that Sophie reported out of Yemen in particular is seared on the mind. It's a terrible, terrible circumstances of children 
dying totally unnecessarily. And I've seen the same things in the civil war in, in Sudan and South Sudan in the 1990s. And when you're there with those people, when you're, when you're in a bomb shelter or when you're, um, you know, you're, you're reporting their circumstance. Mm, it's hard to and detach. So, and, and you're quite right. You're not, you're not make dialing up you know, even if you had a number, you're not dialing up the guy who's ordering the bombs to come in and saying, look, uh, I'm just down here, <laughs> you know, uh, what's your side of what's going on right now? Because because in a sense, that's not necessary to telling a story. Um, I don't think, unless you're taking a total eagle view over everything, that that in the course, in the, in the, in the middle of a conflict, uh, you know, you can be sufficiently detached as to not tell the story that's in front of you. Mm. And so is there a danger in that? Yes, it's an ancient danger of reporting, I suppose. But there's no question that um, you need to show one of the things. I'm reading the biography of uh, of Marie Colvin, the great war correspondent yeah. who was killed in Syria at the moment. And, um, you know, she spent so much of her time. She said she was interested in humanity in extremis, in war, what happens, what it looks like. And I relate to that. I think that your job at certain times is to be there in the weeds with the people who are suffering and say, this is what is happening to these people now. Yep. And that is part of your duty. And Sophie, do you think it's too big an ask of a journalist to remain detached, particularly in, in covering conflict? I mean, personally, I do. No, I think, what do you think? I mean, I think that's what can be wrong with journalism these days. You know, the idea that you should be this detached robot. You know, you're dealing with humans, human beings, their lives, you know, their fate. Um, you have to get close and personal. Mm. You, you, I, I think that's the best journalism. It's not saying you're not accurate, that you're not re reporting the facts, that you're not verifying everything and double-checking it. and that, that doesn't make that redundant i mean it, it, i i think you have to get close you know you have to be right there with them and try and get an idea of how they feel and i, I and i and i think too often we we have uh, in journalism education i think it's become too academic you know this idea of the detached reporter being you know totally objective no objective like i'm a i'm a human i'm a woman i'm a mother like i'm not you know i i am not some robot who's going to just, um, you know, stand there and, and kind of try and act detached. No, I, I think people want up close personal reporting because that's all you know, the audiences are the same. You know, they, 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 I think if you react the way any normal person would, you know, like I've been in situations like she was talking about Yemen coverage in an emergency room in Yemen where the starving, you know, little boy won't, won't get into the, the intensive care because no one's got 20 bucks to pay it. So I paid it, you know, mm. you could, did I overstep the line? You know, was that, you know, was I not objective? Was that going to harm my reporting? No, I was just reacting as a human, you know, and I think people appreciate that in reporting. Mm. Uh, I think it's silly to try and pretend you can be some kind of a, you know, objective robot who doesn't um, react in a way that most of us would if we were in that situation. So, Hugh, what do you think? Do you think that the, you know, the ethical codes by which we've all grown up as reporters, uh, where where it's demanded of us that we uh, we remain detached, so we remain the cool observers, um, that we remain objective, do they serve us well in in war zones when we're in those situations? Well, it's interesting. There's nothing actually in the code of ethics that says we have to remain 
uh, coolly detached. Uh, it says that we should, you know, be strive for accuracy, of course, and fairness and disclosure of all essential facts and, and don't give distorting emphasis. And I think that's all fair. I, I think I've never felt, in fact, ethically troubled reporting uh, on any war zone or conflict zone reporting on what's on the ground. It's never troubled me. And I've also felt that one of the key things you do as a journalist, as opposed to, say, academics and politicians and the diplomatic corps and all that kind of stuff, is that you are allowed to go on the ground and see what's happening on the ground. Mm. And that's why journalists often bell the cat when things are going wrong or when plainly leaders are feeding the world bullshit is you say, nah, have a look at this. This is what I saw today. How does this fit with the narrative? that's coming out. So you do challenge power and, and you do challenge those things by the mere fact of what's on the ground of your reportage. So, uh, you know, I've, I've often felt that journalism is one of the most ethical things you can do uh, as a foreign reporter. Um, you know, if, if people are constrained by that, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know. I understand that if you say go to North Korea, it is perceived and understood that you're not going to be reporting for. You know that you're under those constraints, but um, but that's understood by your audience, and you go to warn your audience of what's going on. I've never been to North Korea, so I don't know. <laughs> but um, but everywhere else I've been in 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 China, uh, in a in Saddam Hussein's Iraq, uh, in you know under the apartheid regime in South Africa. Uh, when it was still driven by the whites, uh, you know, I, I've always felt that your job is to get to what is the truth on the ground. And that's often embarrassing to power. And you take your chops as you go. And just a small thing on what Sophie says, and I realize the difference between working for commercial media and working for public media is that public media has complaint processes that exist in commercial media as well. Um, but the uh, the structure of the complaint processes in public media, because it's public money that is funding uh, the outlet, uh, it may be that, as, as Sophie calls it, the Israel lobby um, will focus more of its attention on the ABC than maybe something as insignificant and hard to influence as as a commercial outfit like Channel 10. Uh, you know, I've in my reporting from a distance on the the latest war in uh, in the Middle East, you know, there've been grumbles from individuals and a few complaints and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but um, but I haven't had any formal uh, approaches or complaints at all. And uh, you know, I've, and I've had some messages of thanks from from people who are aligned with the Palestinian cause. But I don't think I, I've done anything to cozy up. You simply report what you think is going on to the best of your ability. Okay. Um, Sophie, can I end up by asking you, and I'll, I'll put this question to both of you, but, but, but as somebody who's now standing outside of journalism, um, but having been in its belly in, in, a, in a very, very dramatic way, covering conflict for all the years that you have, what do you think fearless journalism looks like? Standing up to pressure. <laughs> um prioritising the truth, the facts and the evidence and, and coming to a conclusion and being confident in that you were there, you saw it, you're calling it out for what it is. And, you know, there's all that noise that will come at you and, oh, but this and the, all of that and take this into account and the complaints and all this. 
and holding your ground and saying, this is what's happening, you know, and that it seems obvious, right? But mm. on the story of Israel-Palestine, it's not always obvious. And it, it's true what he was saying, you know, the commercials don't, don't get it anywhere near as much as the ABC. And what I'm asking for Australian journalists to do is to not shy away from a story that they're told is so complex. Um, I'm asking them to treat it like any other story. You know, you wouldn't sit down and, and meet with lobby groups or ambassadors with other stories, so don't with this one. Treat, treat it like any other story where you're focusing on the facts and the evidence and that you as, as that expert who's put that time in and is on the ground and spoken to people and weighed it all up, that you can make the call of what the story is. Um, so I'm saying, yeah, be brave. That's that's my call in my arm. Okay, Hugh. Um, I, I imagine that you'd agree with much of that, but the 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 final leg in Sophie's um, description is come to a conclusion. Is that something that you agree with? Well, uh, sometimes on stories that I've done, I've said this is just one person's perspective in this wider war. Uh, you know, so you know, I've reported. Um, I remember reporting, for example, I, I was out on patrol with an American. Uh, patrol in Baghdad during the surge came under fire where there was all this sort of business going on. And then afterwards I interviewed him and he said, the war's a waste of time. Basically he says, we, we're going to be this place worse than, than we came here. And, and, uh, and the people who have supported us will then feel the wrath as he pronounced it. And, and he was dead accurate. He was a sergeant who'd been in there for four years by that stage for most of four years. And, um, and it was exactly against the um you know the the official line that was coming out of the united states about how well the war was going and so on and you know i just said look this is this is one guy's perspective but he's earned the right to have it and it doesn't matter you can say that in any you know you don't have to claim that the experience of 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 anybody inside a war even those even you know in a village that are being bombed um you report that and you but you acknowledge that it's just one part of a war um so th- so you can do that. What's fearless journalism? I still think it is getting on the ground uh, and having editors willing to uh, put people into the risk. When, when budgets are tightening, we know that they are. Um, but it's, it's having a go to find out for yourself what's going on and then report what you see. That's great. Thank you very, very much. On that note, I think we'll we'll uh, we'll say goodbye. Thank you both, uh, Sophie McNeil and Hugh Rimminton. That was a fantastic discussion, and I hope we have you both back on Fourth Estate very soon. Great to talk. Thanks, Monica. Thank you, Hugh. Take Thanks, Monica. Bye. Bye, bye, right. guys. Thank you both. And on that note, I'd like to thank you, Sophie McNeil and Hugh Rimmington, for your time. And thanks for listening to The Fourth Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to them for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so that you can hear us talk about media, politics and everything in between. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, time you can stay in touch with us on twitter our handle there is fourth estate au thanks to my producer anthony dockrell as always my name is monica attard and thank you for listening <laughs>